Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 317 of the podcast. It's September 4th, 2018. My guest today is Patricia Morrill. She is a speaker, trainer, consultant, researcher, and author of the book, the Perils of Uncoordinated Healthcare, a Strategic Approach Toward Eliminating Preventable Harm. With 30 years of experience in the healthcare industry, she is focused on blending operational efficiencies with healing environments. Patricia has successfully integrated lean and project management methodologies with organizational strategic goals to build roadmaps for execution. In today's episode, we'll discuss her very personal story about her mother's death, that came as the result of a preventable medical error, or it seems a sequence of preventable errors. What can be done to prevent medical errors, harm, and death? That's the important topic of today's episode. To learn more about Patricia, her book, her website, her blog, and more, you can go to leanblog.org slash 317. Patricia, hi. Thank you for being a guest on the podcast today. Well, thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here with you. So, you know, we have some, you know, the serious um, patient safety issues, you know, to discuss today, things that have affected you and your family personally. And, you know, I think we're talking about it because, you know, I want the listeners to be aware of, um, you know, the issues related to uh, patient safety, the perils of uncoordinated healthcare, as your book title uh, states, Patricia, but I was wondering if you could start off by, you know, kind of introducing yourself and some of your career path in Lean and uh, Six Sigma and project management, if you could um, start off with that, please. Sure. Well, um, I've been involved with the healthcare industry for about 30 years. And actually, I started as a medical assistant which was a really good thing I did that because I wanted to be a direct caregiver and that proved to me I could not. I couldn't even remove Band-Aids, <laughs> much less stick somebody with a needle. So <laughs> thank goodness before uh, loads of uh, college um, courses, I realized that I just couldn't do that. So I took the administration track instead because I really wanted to support that awesome work that the caregivers do. So that seemed to be a different twist for me as a staff advocate and uh, leader support. Mm-hmm. So um, I worked in uh, hospitals for um, quite a long time in various operational leadership roles. And then because I understood healthcare so well, I had the awesome opportunity. Uh, when I was asked to help design healthcare space because I understood it so well. And then that really helped me move into project management. And then um, probably uh, about 12 years ago, um, I studied lean and six, uh, got my Six Sigma green belt as well. And since then, I've been promoting lean in healthcare because, oh my goodness, talk about waste. (laughs) So with lean, I found in healthcare, uh, I've been able to help clients improve processes, care delivery, and also lean facility design. So it's been a real interesting career. 
Yeah, and you know, with a lot of these different projects, you know, and and potential, like you said, there there's sometimes seemingly endless waste in healthcare delivery, healthcare processes, and you know, did did the organization you were working with at the time? Um, allow you to get involved in some projects that applied Lean and Six Sigma to quality and patient safety. Where I think you know, and part of the reason, part of the thought behind the question is that a lot of organizations, unfortunately, only focus on you know, kind of you know, cost, efficiency, patient flow, which are important. But you know, since since we're talking patient safety today, safety today, I'm curious what connections you found in, in your work between Lean and improving quality and patient safety. Well, I was more when I was into Lean and Six Sigma, I was more into a consulting role at that time. And so I was out of the healthcare system as an employee. And honestly, it probably helped being a third party to be able to come in and provide better questions. And yes, it's easy to look at lean facility design, at, at billing, at registration, at those more business processes. But also uh, with Lean and Six Sigma, started using more and more risk assessments in healthcare for decision making with care delivery. We've heard a lot about FMEA, failure modes and effects analysis, used for medication errors and things like that. So I was really able to expand that so many times in healthcare, our decisions are made by who's the most senior person who talks the loudest or whatever. And so I really uh, challenged people, if you're not clear on the decision, let's try a risk assessment, no matter what the topic is, and see if that will help expose a good answer uh, for the sake of patient safety. So that's that's one thing that I have used consistently mm-hmm. with uh, a variety of healthcare improvements. Yeah, and with risk assessment and FMEA, and I think one thing that's great about that approach is that it allows us to be proactive instead of just reacting uh, to uh, an uh, an incident, a near miss. Um, I, I think we would agree that um, the more we can do to identify potential risks, the better off we are. What, what are your thoughts maybe to elaborate on on some of that? Absolutely. And of course, people are so busy, they don't want to take the time, but um, they're afraid that um, a risk assessment process Let's just move on. We know what the answers should be, but we have to use risk assessment to be, as you said, more proactive because healthcare isn't working. We're harming people. So we do need to take the time to uh, be more proactive to prevent harm because what, what we're doing now isn't working. And that doesn't, I am in no way, please don't misunderstand me. I'm in no way blaming people. Nobody goes to work saying, oh, who can I harm today? I mean, that's just clearly not the case. But we, uh, with the pressure cooker environment that healthcare is, do more with less and cost is always the issue. We really have to be more proactive. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I've, 
you know, interviewed others about patient safety and I've, you know, I've said on my own blog, you know, as, as much as I've been an advocate for lean, lean is a, a solution. I'm, I'm, I'm more concerned about the problems to be solved and, you know, the patient safety is, I think, at, at the top of that list. Like you said, we're harming people, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of, uh, Americans a year, depending on which study we look at. But, you know, right, but, you know let, let's me, you know, take, um, a step back from, you know, high level statistics and talk about, um, your book and, and, you know, I think the unfortunate circumstances that, that led to the book, if, if, if you could tell that story. Sure. Well, um, my mother died from preventable harm and she had a very routine knee replacement surgery and got an infection from that. She had a second surgery to clean out the surgery site, but it didn't work. It wasn't successful. And so the infection couldn't really be cured. And so my sister and I spent two months in, in her home taking care of her with hospice care. And going through that process, as, as a lean practitioner, you can just imagine how hard that was to swallow. Um, I realized how many, there was no coordination of care, and that, that really jumped out at me. And then I was um, asked by a hospital to lead a lean leadership development series and I, I needed an example of uncoordinated care. And of course, then I realized, oh, my gosh, use my mom's story. And I did that in the workshop. And people just were so appreciative um, that I shared the details of her story with something that is so common as knee replacement and all the various things that happened with uncoordinated care. And then I did a national workshop using the story. And again, people were so thankful. And so I decided, well, I guess I better write a book so that I could share that information with more healthcare leaders and any, any one person I can help um, is, is, is beneficial. Yeah. And, you know, what, what did you learn, um, you know, I guess, looking at what was happening or not happening with your mom that um, would, would lead to, um, you know, what, what were some of the factors that, that led to this that would be deemed preventable? Because I'm, I'm, I'm not doubting that a lot of these are preventable, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of, there's some hospitals out there that have really focused on uh, reducing infections after joint replacements, knees and hips. I, I visited uh, a facility, um, called, it kind of goes by the acronym SWELIOC, um, Southwest London Elective Orthopedic Center um, five or six years ago, where they had used lean and other methods to essentially cut post-op infections um, to zero. And, um, you know, so I know there's a lot of process-related factors. What what are some of the things that that you've uncovered in your work or research about what practices would, would lead to um, preventing infections? 
Well, uh, as you first asked, um, with my mom, the resulting harm consisted of the infection from surgery, a pressure ulcer, and uh, medication error that I happened to witness myself and take forward to the doctor. And um, so those are very well-known common issues that hospitals are dealing with all the time. And then, of course, all the readmissions she had because of the, the difficulties that she had. And so I really found that a, a contributing factor to my mother's death was lack of coordination. And in so many different ways and many different departments. And so, as you can imagine, as a lean practitioner, retrospectively, I did a high-level value stream map. And in, in going through that process, because while it's happening, even though I'm a, a, I've worked in healthcare 30 years, you're still a daughter of, right. of a mother who's going through something and it's emotional. And so retrospectively, I did the value stream map and actually it became clear that she never even should have had surgery in the first place. Because what I found was that for just her pre-op services and procedures to get her ready for surgery was $58,000 pre-op. Now that is pretty much uh, getting close to what a total uh, hip uh, knee replacement is for the entire pre-op and surgery and post-op. And so nobody was talking about risk. Nobody was talking about, well, maybe she wasn't a good candidate for surgery. And her cardiologist wouldn't sign off because he wanted to do several procedures. So, um, so several things contributed, the, the physicians not speaking to each other, and, um, and again, the medication error, they're not, she was on two blood thinners and she was bleeding, so hello. <laughs> yeah. So just, just not communicating. Oh, um, yeah, so, I mean, unfortunately, sadly, there were a lot of different preventable effects. I mean, I've seen in the case of, of pressure ulcers, uh, AKA bed sores for people who don't know the term pressure ulcer, you know, if patients are not being uh, repositioned frequently and we might, you know, we could do a five wise analysis or a fishbone diagram on this. Like you said, Patricia, it's, it's not bad people. It might be people who uh, are, are overworked or overburdened, or maybe there's not a good system for tracking, who has done what, when, um, you know, so I, I look at it when I see circumstances like that, uh, you know, issues around capacity planning, standardized work. How do you know you have the right number of people to do the right work the right way? And, and you know, medication errors um, often come down to a lack of error proofing, bad process, people being um, rushed through their work. Um it's just you know it's 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 sad when it's uh, risk and it's it's even worse clearly when there's when there's harm and death that that results. Um, I mean, what, what were some of the other things that you? Were, was there anything that you learned, Patricia, that 
helped tie back to anybody taking interest in improving their process to prevent the same thing from happening again? Or what? I'm, I'm curious if you don't mind me asking, what was some of the response from the providers and, and the hospital system after the fact? Well, it, during, during the process, um, you know, the orthopedist who did the surgery apologized and and really was trying to do more and more surgeries and bring in somebody else and and um and and honestly after having two surgeries we were told her heart really couldn't withstand any more surgeries and so i had to tell the orthopedist please go talk to the cardiologist who's telling me that it's not a good idea so will you two please talk to each other and um, but then, honestly, when I wrote the book, um, we we did not we had so many people say to us, well, why don't you sue the hospital? And it's like, oh, this is a system issue. There's not right. one there is not one person I can tell you that um, caused my mother's death. And so um, what I wanted to do in my book is to not name anyone because my point is this is happening day in and day out with very routine things. I'm not talking brain surgery or, you know, things that are unusual. And so I did not name my mother, the hospital, anything in my book. However, what I did do as soon as the book was published, I went back to the hospital where this happened and I told them a book was coming out and it, and it was them in the book that I did not name and I wanted them to know that. And um, they were extremely appreciative. They said that is absolutely how we learn. And in fact, because of course, a few years had passed when you write a book, and they said that, you know what, we probably are doing better with risk assessment and we probably wouldn't have done surgery on her in the first place. And so they had done a lot of improvement, but they wanted to use my book for all the leadership team to learn from that it happened in their hospital. So I didn't expect them to stand up and say it, it happened there but at least I could see that they had made lots of improvements and appreciated the real stories. Yeah. Because like you said, this, this happens far too often. Um, I mean, what, what statistics, what are some of the statistics that you cite in, in your book about um, medical error in general? Is it, is it possible to sort of even, you know, estimate this might be an unanswerable question, of you know how much harm is the result of um, things that would be characterized as uncoordinated care? Well, the statistic that I look at um, that I want um, to spread information about a very poor statistic that preventable medical errors are the third leading cause of death. Now we've heard numbers of people being harmed 
and there hasn't been a lot of reaction. There's been a whole lot of improvement. My goodness, wonderful things are happening. But until the research came out that it's the third leading cause of death, then then people are taking notice because, of course, everyone knows about heart disease and cancer, but not many people know that it's the third leading cause of death. So that means healthcare workers, I mean, this is the most important thing for patients to keep patients safe. And then patients themselves need to know this so that they can be more uh, in control and participate in their healthcare decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, for for being the third leading cause of death, um, you know, this issue, I, I, in my opinion, doesn't get near enough media attention um, compared to uh, I've, I've, cancer, heart disease. Um, it certainly doesn't get as much attention as. Uh, you know the the relatively small number of deaths caused these days by by plane accidents. I mean, you know, there's the the analogy or the the parallels. You know, people draw. I'm sure you've heard this cited. Is you know the number of people who die every day in the U.S. due to preventable medical error is the equivalent of a seven. 47 or whatever size plane with the right number of seats, depending on the statistic, you know, the equivalent of one of those planes crashing every day. And we're going to get to a point where kids are going to ask, what's a plane crash? Because they happen so rarely anymore. Um, I mean, do do you have any thoughts? I mean, this might just be speculation, you know, I realize, but um, I mean, thoughts on, on why this isn't getting more public attention. Well, I think it's because something you mentioned previously, we don't create capacity for improvement. So people don't have time to talk about it. And it's not more discussable because people are running from patient to patient. And, um, and so we have the sole purpose of reducing cost and so we don't have enough people in healthcare workforce to help improve the healthcare delivery system. Caregivers are crazy busy right. and they right. don't have time to lead improvement efforts. And we're not budgeting for training for the workforce to have the skills to lead change. So, um, so that's why I want to do everything I can to make harm more discussable and share real stories to help people talk about it so that they can, like we mentioned previously, so that they can be more proactive in preventing problems. So my, my approach and my hope is that by real stories, um, People can start talking every day about teamwork and and huddle activity, what's happening real time, and um, and that type of thing. So I think, you know, people aren't talking about it because it's it's not a happy subject, and um, a lot of people don't want to be transparent about what their department numbers are, what the overall health system numbers are. People don't want to talk about those those bad incidences. And we've we've got to change that culture because again, it's a system-wide issue. So we need each other 
to help solve these problems and prevent yeah. death. Yeah, and you're right that you know the busyness factor, the overburden. Um, you know, when people in healthcare say we don't have time for continuous improvement, I, I try to push back and say, well, that's the first problem we need to solve. Right. Whether exactly. That's, you know, that back to this question of what the what the staffing level should be. You know, I've been in hospitals where, uh, frankly, they are under they are understaffed to what their standard is. And they don't reduce patient volume accordingly. So then that make uh, I, I ask uncomfortable questions about um, you know nurse uh, patient nurse ratios, and you know I think even if it, they were at their full full staffing level, we could ask and question. Well, how do we know that's the right number of people if they're just getting by and don't have time uh, to talk about improvement, yet alone do things uh, you know to work on that improvement. Like to me, that, that's just not a valid excuse for, I'm generalizing, for an industry to say, we don't have time to do that. Well, it, it's critically important that we figure out how, right? I mean, that, that's, that's one thing that's still, um, you probably hear the frustration in my voice, so I'll get off my soapbox, but it's, it's sad. It's very sad. It's absolutely correct. And, and people need to, to get away from the concept that improvement means going to a conference room mm -hmm. and have a meeting about it. We've got to get away from that and and make sure that healthcare leaders are going to the gemba where the work is happening, that they take more ownership and understanding what's going on in the areas they're responsible for. So the improvement needs to happen right in the area uh, and and get away from this taking time to go to meetings for improvement. So I think that's that's one hurdle to, mm -hmm. to get away from. Yeah. What what are some you know if time was made available? I mean, what what are some of the other questions that should be discussed in in hospitals to either help caregivers you know proactively prevent errors or are there are there things that uh, patients or family members should go out of their way to uh, to bring up in the discussion about um, getting getting home safely? Well, clearly, patients and their families have to be encouraged to speak up and ask questions. Anything at all they don't understand, they really need to have someone they can ask questions of, whether it's the physician, the nurse, or caseworker or whoever it is, they need to have answers to their questions. So that culture of, of welcoming patients and families into the team care group is critical. Um, and so patients need to take better control of their own health care. And uh, one of the main questions is, for, for groups to understand how can we do it right the first time? So as we know from lean, defects are waste. Mm -hmm. So if, if harm is the 30 le third leading cause of death, then you really have to believe the cost of defects then is astronomical. So we can't, we've got to stop talking about healthcare cost 
if we don't also talk about the cost of poor quality. We just don't hear that. And if we can reduce the cost of defects, that will be amazing in terms of of what we can do. But I honestly, I think the most important question for the workforce is to be able to be comfortable every day with asking, can you help me to reach out to others? Again, that it's a it's a team, it's a whole system that's going to keep patients safe and do things right the first time. So how can I be more comfortable going and reaching out to others to ask help? And again, I go back to leaders to say they need to role model that and at the Gemba and wherever to to bring forth the question, how can I help you? So how can I help you, nurse or staff person or department? What can I do to support you so that you can do things right the first time? What do you need? And and that takes a different culture. Yeah. Well, and I, I think, you know, what you're saying is, you know, to welcome people in, um, you know, leader, you know, lean and continuous improvement. We talk about leaders creating an environment where it's safe for people to speak up and point out risks to speak up with ideas. I, I think there's a lot that hospitals can do to really invite that from patients. You know, I've seen surveys that some hospitals have done that show a lot of their their patients, you know, they can hang all the signs they want that say, you know, you should ask questions. But when they survey people, they're uh, quite often afraid to do so for, for different reasons. And I think it takes a lot of effort to, to make people feel truly welcome. I mean, have, have you seen examples or, or have thoughts about how to make people feel more welcome and safe, whether it's uh, providers or patients? Um, that's a challenging one. <laughs> um, just, you know, making, uh, we're doing better with healthcare design where we're designing in spaces for, pa- you know, patients, families, and visitors. Because honestly, the caregivers need families to help be there in the room and call when there's a problem because they have so many other patients to deal with. So more and more families and visitors are encouraged to be around. And that's what it really takes. I think we've got to move more towards those patient navigators and um, hospitals or healthcare systems that do a better job with having navigators to help patients through their their procedures and surgeries, they can be that um, safety net between the various disciplines to make sure the handoffs are working smoothly. And they can help be a conduit with the patient to make sure they're getting the education and information they need all along the way. So I think from a staffing perspective, we need more people Um, that are helping navigate the care. We've done that with uh, cancer and oncology navigators. Those are pretty frequent. So we need to expand that kind of a concept to other um, surgeries and things like that. Yeah. 
Well, I think there's there's a real need for uh, people to have an advocate uh, for them um, during 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 their stay, and and you know I think you know there there are no easy answers to um, complicated questions like this, but. You know, I want to you know, turn back to uh, to to your book um, again, the perils of uncoordinated care. You know, there, there's a lot that we can do to you know talk about the problem statement, the scale of the problem, some of the causes. But in your book, you you kind of lay out uh, a model um, to help prevent errors, harm, and death, a, a process improvement strategy deployment model. Um, I want people to go buy the book and, and read the model, but if you can, maybe it's just give kind of an introduction um, to the model and how it's structured. Sure. Um, the first part of the book is stories and culture and uh, self-assessments and those types of things. And then the second part of the book is is a 10-step model. And it's a management model that encourages raising process improvement to a strategic level. And it gives step-by-step instruction, reflecting back to my mother's story and how this model can be used. And it integrates lean and project management methodology. So it's not a textbook, but it helps to guide leaders, if you will. So from Step one of assessing the reality of the current state before jumping into the strategic planning. So, so many times we have these disparate activities of executives going off to retreats for strategic planning and doing that without a thorough assessment of what is really going on, what's the truth about the current state. And then um, the various steps take you through so that when you roll out the strategic plan, it's not PowerPoint slides, which is mostly what I get. And it's rather the start of A3 problem solving. So if you can roll out A3 problem solving as a as an, a beginning of here's the current state and here's the issue that we want you to take and solve with your departments, that gives you much greater possibility to succeed in your strategic planning. And your strategic planning has to include reducing preventable harm. If we don't make preventable harm a strategic initiative, then it it doesn't come off as being very important. So the process improvement strategy deployment, um, really what I've found in working with folks is that Lean helps you identify what to do. Um, They see the problem. Here's what you need to do. But a lot of times people are struggling with implementing improvement. What I see is they're trying to change too many things at once Mm. or even worse than that, they're not changing anything because it's so overwhelming. Mm. Well, if you look at project management, that can help bring in phasing, sequencing improvements, and then you can have more successful outcomes 
and outcomes that you can actually sustain. Yeah, and when you talk about you know too many priorities, uh, too many top priorities in strategic planning, that's a different form of overburden. Um, you know, to me, the the kind of classic lean strategy deployment process, uh, uh, among other things, includes this uh, you know sort of tough decision making around you know picking the the, the critical few. John Toussaint um, you know calls them the um, the must do, can't fail initiatives where, you know, I've gone through this process with organizations a couple of times of trying to go from like, you know, 300 top initiatives down to the top 15 to say it's better to pick the 15 that we think are going to move the needle in these critically important areas, including quality and patient safety. And let's get 15 of them implemented. And then we'll move on to the next ones where I think otherwise there's that dynamic that we see in Dilbert cartoons of, you know, Wally pointing the fingers of like, well, I didn't do project A because of my responsibilities on project B and I didn't get project B done because of project A. Um, you know, and I'm, you know, that, that's, that's a extreme, you know, circumstance. I think, you know, in healthcare people, meanwhile, they're not shirking responsibility. They're just pulled in too many, too many directions. I, I really appreciate you bringing that up as a topic. Yeah, definitely. They, they're so overwhelmed. There's, there's just no way. I mean, and I worked in healthcare for such a long time and, and it really, and I was not a clinical person as, as I mentioned, I wanted to be, but I wasn't. And even as a a director level, it, it was, it was like adrenaline you're just so busy, your your schedule is completely packed going from one thing to another to another. And it's true, you don't have time to think or, or, or improve or anything because you're just exhausted and just trying to let your schedule drive where you're going next. So it's, it's, it's just way too busy. It's got to slow down so that we can do quality work. Yeah. So we talk about the idea of prioritizing, you know, so there's, there's the one uh, failure mode, if you will, of, you know, people trying to get too take on too much and there's a swirl of activity. Um, Then there's maybe the, the failure mode of, of choosing something to do and then being ineffective with it. So could you elaborate maybe what some of your, experiences or recommendations are in terms of, uh, you know, combining methods and body of knowledge from lean and project management? Well, I, I like the A3 problem solving process. I think it's absolutely excellent. And so I specifically bring in project management once you get to the PDCA cycle. Um, So here you've figured out your root cause, what your target's gonna be, and then you start um, highlighting what you're gonna do. And, And so that's where project management can really help with a work breakdown structure that has really resonated for people. And what that is, a work breakdown structure in project management where you, you literally are breaking down the work 
of what needs to happen in order to do this project. So you kind of line it up in buckets and then you're better able um, to do that from an improvement perspective. So it's good for projects as well as improvement and, and look at all the steps that need to happen in order to make this change happen. Right. So a lot of this problem solving has to do with how do you make change happen? And then when you break it down into um, a work breakdown structure, you can start putting dates to it, a schedule. You can look at sequencing. Sometimes we need to improve this part A before we go improve part B. And, and then guess what? We can be more successful and people get nervous. Well, we need to get this all accomplished, you know, in, in two quarters. Well, let's do this part in the first quarter and this next part in the second quarter. And that really helps take away that overwhelming feeling that people have. And you're able to be more successful in, in making change happen. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, I think that's, that's the, I think that's the key is, um, you know, the success in improving, um, you know, these things that, that are so critically important. Um, you know, I saw an article the other day that, you know, hospital, you know, put out a press release that they had trained and certified a thousand green belts and they had done a thousand and something projects and, you know, that made me think back to my days um, at the last manufacturing company I worked for had a dynamic where I think they had certified 500 green belts. And a couple of years later, the number of green belt projects completed was something like 502. Because oh. after certification, the environment, unfortunately, wasn't allowing people um, to continue down that path of, of, of having time to solve problems and a structured or systematic way, whether that's with A3s or something else. I mean, I, I hope this hospital continues down that path. And at some point they can put out press releases saying, here's how, how much we've reduced pressure ulcers and post-op infections and medication errors. And, you know, uh, I'll, I'll give them credit that at some point you've got to train people and get people started. Um, but I, I hope they're moving um, to the point where they can move the needle on some of these measures um, that really matter. So um, as we start to wrap up here, uh, before we you know, wrap up and talk about the book, I mean, this is maybe a ridiculous, unfair question when it comes to magic wands, but you know, if you had a magic wand, what are a couple of things that you would change uh, in healthcare tomorrow to help, um, to help solve these critically important problems? Well, I think, so, so important. I go back to that culture. We have to build actually a culture of trust so that we can have open and honest communication so we can ask each other for help without feeling like um, I don't know what I don't know how to do something and how I'm going to be blamed or chastised for that. So we have to solve problems together. So we need that culture of trust. And it needs to uh, be role modeled from the very top. And something that 
I keep running into is actually another uh, component is human resources. I think the leaders in that area really need to step up and be more involved in process improvement, that they need to be included because, in fact, they're, they're instrumental in hiring people. So we need to do a better job of employee orientation to, to better train people to speak up, to prevent harm. That culture needs to start right away as soon as they're hired. And, and so I think human resources need to be greater partners in, in how to do this. And even finance leaders, my goodness, we have electronic health record. There's so much data that's real-time data now. And we need our finance leaders to look at real-time cost and stop looking retrospectively. And, and I give you an example. My friend was in the hospital for 12 days for appendicitis. So why didn't finance raise a red flag? And in fact, what was going on? She was being harmed. She was reacting to the morphine they were giving her. And no one noticed until her daughter finally spoke up. So finance, human resources, all these departments need to get on board for improvement because it takes everyone. And I know you only asked for a couple, but I have one more. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> that we absolutely need to stop these mega mergers of healthcare systems. Getting larger <laughs> isn't going to create greater inefficiencies, is going to create greater inefficiencies, and we're not going to be able to solve patient harm. These mega mergers just have to stop. Well, it seems like the mega mergers are more about uh, negotiating leverage with payers and, and things like that, where you know these 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 you know, the word system gets used, but it, you know a collection of hospitals uh, is not necessarily uh, a system. And um, yeah, I, I agree that I think it seems a lot of these mergers are not leading to increased sharing and learning um, across these different hospitals, right? Right, exactly. Well, um, you know, I appreciate everything that, that you've shared with us here today, Patricia. Um, can you tell the listeners where they can find you online, uh, your, your blog, where they can learn more about your book? Sure. Um, my website it has a link to my book and also ways to connect with me. And my, my website is pmhcconsulting.com. And I've recently la launched a new healthcare blog site, and that is pmhc.blog. And the focus for that is is just like what we're talking about, roundtable topics for discussion to help people have conversations and with their team members. So um, also my blog is highlighting some great work. I've talked a lot about what's going wrong, <laughs> but my yeah. blog yeah. does talk about some great work that's getting started this year with a national 
committee underway for patient safety. So um, that will, that's being launched now, which I'm very excited about. Well, good. And, you know, it, there's, um, you know, I mean, that's what happens. People go and, you know, it's important to talk about the problems because they're, uh, they're real. They're not isolated. Um, you know, every, everything we do to create awareness, um, I, I think will help. But then, you know, I appreciate that through your book and our conversation today, you know, that you're also focused on recommendations and solutions and, you know, a 10-step model for process improvement strategy deployment. So I encourage um, everyone to check that out. Again, our guest today has been uh, Patricia Morrill. Um, thank you so much for taking time and um, talking about these important subjects here. Well, Mark, I really appreciate you asking me to be here. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.